Next, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with a trauma surgeon about a life-saving technique that everyone needs to know. So a tourniquet is a piece of material that goes around a, an extremity that's attached to the tourniquet that you twist around until the bleeding stops. Then we'll discuss the role of whole grains in a healthy diet. When we look at brown rice, good fiber source, good nutrition, good vitamins or minerals are in that. When we take those things away, we're taking away those. And we'll hear about occupational health hazards that take a toll on women. The alternative to sitting is static, immobile, standing like the way North American uh, supermarket cashiers are. And that is an extremely unhealthy posture. All that and a visit from our healing muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk with a registered dietitian nutritionist about whole grains. Then we'll explore occupational health hazards that affect women with a noted author and researcher. But first, we'll hear about an effort to teach people how to stop severe bleeding. Today we're going to talk about a technique that can be life-saving with Upstate's Chief of Trauma, Critical Care Burns, and Acute Care Surgery, Dr. William Marks, and with Upstate's Trauma Program Manager, Jolene Kittle. They're both here to discuss bleeding control, the use of tourniquets, and a free program called Stop the Bleed that's a project of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Well, we all remember the horrifying mass shooting in December 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary where 26 and 7-year-olds and six adult staff members were gunned down. Dr. Marks, what did we learn from the autopsies? Well, the autopsies were attended by um, a trauma surgeon from the University of Connecticut, Lenworth Jacobs. He went to all of the autopsies and he went there with the intent to see what could have been done to save more kids' lives. And the one thing he found is that there were five or maybe six children who bled to death from extremity injuries. Wow. And if they had a tourniquet, he thought, the, they would have been able to survive. A tourniquet with, applied by someone who knew how to apply it right. or put it on. So, okay, so let's get into first uh, the basics of controlling um, bleeding, serious bleeding. So what's the first step? First step is direct pressure. With um, bare with, hands, with whatever with bare you got? With hands, with your shirt, with your T-shirt, with any piece of cloth just to push down on it. And that'll stop and control most bleeding initially. So if, the per, if there's clothing on, do you, you just press on press, top of the clothing? Press on top. Okay. If you have to. If you can get it down to, to bare skin, it's better. But if you have to just do it over the clothing put pressure on it while you get the clothes out of the way. So in old first aid classes, I remember being taught to elevate, but yeah. that's not necessary? That's, that's not advocated anymore at all. Um, it, it really doesn't do anything to control bleeding, and it really doesn't help bring more blood to the, to the heart. Um, so we don't, we don't advocate that anymore at all. Okay. 
How long does it take to stop the bleeding? Well, if you have direct pressure and you can put it right on the injury itself right away, you can stop the bleeding. You can control the bleeding at that point. Okay. You can stop the blood loss. But you have to keep direct pressure on the injury. The continual. Continual. The okay. The intent behind this is in a situation that you described uh, earlier is that EMS or emergency medical services most likely would not have immediate access to the patient due to the nature of what's going on. So this would provide the intervention necessary to save the life during that interim before professional... Before the helpers get... Yes. Okay. That makes sense. So um, if the direct pressure isn't working, um, and then you're looking at needing a tourniquet? Right. For an extremity so injury, you Just use extremities, extremity arms and legs. Uh, tourniquets don't work on the trunk of the body or the neck or the head. Okay. So it's any extremity that is bleeding a tourniquet works very well so for. So tell us what a tourniquet is. So a tourniquet is a piece of material. Now they're, they're made out of um, some sort of a rubber plastic type material that goes around a, an extremity and then is cinched down. You pull up on a strap that has Velcro on it and put that down tight and then there's what's called a windlass. It's just a a piece of straight plastic tubing that's attached to the tourniquet that you twist around until the bleeding stops. And then there's a way to secure it to the tourniquet and it just stops all the bleeding. So it's really tight. It's really uh, tight. Strap it's really tight and it's not meant to be taken off. So um, these, do they go on the wound or above, above the it? wound? Above they it. go above the wound. Okay. And they've been around for they've a while. They've been around for decades, thousands of years. Um, you know, they were used a lot in the Civil War where there were a lot of extremity injuries, um, but they didn't use them consistently, and a lot of the, the soldiers um, died from that. It, it really took off again recently with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the soldiers, the Marines, the SEALs are out, and they're either in vehicles or on foot, and they run into IEDs. And explosive devices. Explosive, yeah, explosive device, improvised explosive devices. And so the, the body armor that they wear protected the, the trunk of the body, but it doesn't protect the extremities. So when the soldiers would go out on a mission, they would place tourniquets on their extremities, not cinch them down. And so that if they had an IED um, event, and if they had injury to an extremity, they could actually tighten their own tourniquet and stop the bleeding and save their own life um, wow. doing that. Well, um, if you use a tourniquet, um, and it can be life-saving, certainly, but if you, is there a way to misuse them? Because uh, Well, if you, don't have, if you don't have an obvious bleeding source, it's not going to help. Um, say somebody has a a fractured hip or a fractured thigh bone or a shin bone, unless the bone is outside of the skin and there's a lot of bleeding associated with it, the tourniquet's not going to do anything. So it's really only for uncontrolled bleeding? Yes. Because um, I think the fear is that, you know, if you use a tourniquet, the person's going to have to be uh, amputated leg but or arm after. Th there are a lot of misconceptions about that. You know, in the, you know, when you go back decades now between World War II and, and now, um, there were thoughts that you put the tourniquet on, you had to release it every two hours, four hours, six hours. 
to let blood go back to the rest of the extremity, and that's really not true. Um, you put it on, and the tourniquet should not come off until the patient gets to the hospital. Okay, and I saw in some of the kits they, they want you to write the time that the tour yeah. tourniquet is put on. Right. Is that, what is that for? Well, that helps us determine whether or not we really want to try to repair an arterial injury or if we should repair an arterial injury or if we should just move to an amputation. Um, if a tourniquet's been on 10 hours, let's say, um, the, the extremity's not going to remain viable. If it's been on an hour, there's a lot we can do to fix that extremity. Interesting. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate Trauma Chief Dr. William Marks and Trauma Program Manager Jolene Kittle about efforts to educate the public on how to control severe bleeding. So, Jolene, I want to ask you about the Stop the Bleed program um, that Upstate Trauma Service is involved in. Tell me, tell me what that includes. So this is a, a national initiative by the American College of Surgeons that's pushed out through the trauma centers with the intent that the trauma centers will bring this program to their region and their communities. This is a way to have lay people implement the strategies that Dr. Marks was speaking about earlier in, event, in the event that a situation like this occurs to provide the education um, and the resources necessary so that anyone involved in a situation like this, especially where EMS can't get to a person, that anyone can help. So we're talking about active shooters or mass shootings kinds of things, but also car crashes or any type of trauma. It was derived from the mass shootings because typically that's when you do have the pro you know, the inability of EMS to get to the patient. But yes, any kind of active uh, bleeding where a person would probably lose their life, can, this, can, this can work. Okay. So are there um, classes or are you... You're, you have the ability, you're looking to train people to put on classes. Yes, we are looking to both have direct trainer, um, train the trainer classes, and the intent with that could be to go to a place of employment or a public place and provide training to people to become trainers to then disseminate this program to their employees and also have open to the public classes to provide the provider classes to anyone who is interested. Okay, so the intent is for um, members of the public to learn how to control bleeding through the use of direct pressure or tourniquets or whatever, and there's some kits? Yes, and the kits are, they're very simple. Um, the principles behind this are very simple. It's, it's simply to just apply pressure with anything that you have, whether it's your hand or gauze, or there's special gauze that also comes in the kit that has a clotting factor, which provides a little extra support. Um, the kit has the, that gauze, it has um, gloves, and it has the tourniquet. So it's, very, it's just very simple. It's not meant to be, you know, the training is just is about those very simple principles. It's not meant to intimidate anyone. It's um, anyone can do it. So are police and first responders, do they already use kits like this, or do they have them on them or out in the... Uh, I'm not sure about the police, but most of the EMS services now carry tourniquets, and they have the gauze and everything else to, to apply direct pressure and, and help stop the bleeding that way. But are there other places that it would make sense to have these kits available? Well, any large public place, um, you know, the world's not the same as it was 15, 20 years ago. And large gatherings seem to be um, attractive to people that want to hurt other people. So having kits in areas like the Dome, like Destiny, in your church or your synagogue, um, at the grocery store, um, in your car um, is a great way to, to be able to, 
to uh, you know have a kit available to you. Are, are, There's already AEDs that we see in a lot of those places, so maybe it would make sense that these would be nearby. Yes, the deployment of the kits would be a similar strategy to that, where they're well-known where to find them and easily accessible to anyone. And our goal would be to have everyone in our community and region to be able to have this information and participate in this if something tragic like that should happen. So on our website, we're going to link to the trauma program, but I'll just give the phone number of 315-464-4773 for anyone who's interested in learning more about this program or getting involved in it in some way. But Dr. Marks, getting back to the bleeding patient. So what happens when someone arrives at the emergency department, the hospital with a tourniquet on or with, you know, massive severe bleeding? What, well, do they go it, straight to the operating room or? It depends. Um, if it's an abdominal injury, they go straight to the operating room because there's really no way to apply direct pressure or anything else until you open the abdomen and see what's bleeding and you can put pressure on it at that time. But on an extremity, we would tend to do our normal trauma evaluation, which is a head-to-toe examination. We would get x-rays of the extremity. And then at that point, depending on when the tourniquet was placed, we would decide to either go right to the OR at that time or we may go to um, interventional radiology or, or um, the vascular interventional suite where the vascular surgeons or the interventional radiologists could put a stent in to cover a bleeding site um, and avoid a trip to the OR if possible. But it depends on the patient's condition. It depends on on what's in, you know how they're injured and how long the tourniquet's been on, but we we go out of our way to try to save extremities and not sure. not amputate them. How do you tell um, how much blood a person has lost and whether they need? Well, there are there are a number of ways you can do it. Their heart rate, their blood pressure is is one way. Um, lab tests really are not helpful when you see a, a trauma patient initially. Um, they really don't tell you whether they've had a significant blood loss or not. Um, we, we also um, have orthopedics down, and they'll help us with uh, stabilizing a fracture so it doesn't keep moving and keep bleeding. Okay. Um, and finally, I just want to ask if there's any new ways of controlling bleeding on the horizon that you're excited well, about. Yeah, there are, there are a number of things. Um, you know, DARPA, the, the uh, Army's Research and Development Program, has been working on a uh, foam that if somebody is shot in the abdomen, it would have a nozzle on it that you would put through that hole into the abdomen and you would press the button and it's kind of like uh, foam insulation and it covers things in the abdomen and as it, as it sets up, it puts pressure on things like the liver, the spleen, the blood vessels in the abdomen. Um, it, it's not ready for prime time, but it, it's pretty close. That's and so the military's you know, testing that right now. Um, I think that's the next biggest advance uh, in, in stopping the bleeding. Wow, well, very interesting. Well, thank, I want to thank both of you for being here um, to talk about the Stop the Bleed program. And uh, I'm Amber Smith, and this has been Upstate's Health Link on Air. Next up, whole grains and the role they play in a healthy diet. 
on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate's HealthLink on Air, I'm Amber Smith. If you're trying to make sure you get whole grains in your diet, shopping for food can be confusing. On the bread aisle alone, you'll find breads that say whole wheat, some that say multigrain, some that say whole grain. Here to help us make the right selection is Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at the Upstate Joslin Diabetes Center. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Okay, so I read that only 8% of U.S. adults eat the three servings of whole grains per day that are recommended by the federal government. Why is that? Is Do we just not know what whole grains are? I think we're confused by it. I think sometimes we get used to eating the typical things that we always do, and we maybe don't try different whole grains. Um, things such as like quinoa have come into light, uh, farro, different grains, and have been around for a long time, but people are like, oh, what are they? I'm used to just cooking my rice or just cooking, you know, a few of the basic things. So I think sometimes it's maybe experimentation um, and also that maybe sometimes people just don't think about trying new foods that are actually great foods for them. Or maybe have any, I mean, what is quinoa? I mean, right. What right. is people, how do you say it? How do you spell it? <laughs> what do I do with it? <laughs> well, and um, I said the three servings of um, whole grains recommended by federal government, but that's changing, right? Well, the new uh, dietary guidelines, uh, 2015 to 2020, are recommending half of your servings um, be whole grains, um, half of your intake be from whole grains, which is, that's where I think the confusing part is. What are we talking about? Um, uh, generally, anywhere from three to five servings. So then you go, what's the serving size? Well, then we can get into the numbers. And I think that's where people get confused. They're like, what is yeah. a serving? What what's, what's the number? of? You know, it's like, okay, so many grams of fiber is recommended. So what's the number? Well, like 16 grams of fiber is one of the numbers that they use. Um, and we'll, I know we'll get into it with the whole grain council. But I think that's where people get confused as far as, how much, where is it coming from, how do I look on the label, and let's admit it, it's, it's time-consuming, and sometimes it's very confusing. So I think sometimes people, like, forget it. I, don't, I can't be bothered. Well, just even the basics, like what, is, what, it, what makes a whole grain a whole grain? Right. So what is a whole grain? A whole grain is the edible part of, of, the, of the grain, and it has the bran, the endosperm, and the germ. So if we're looking at rice, well, brown rice has all those. If we're looking at white rice, that's missing it there's missing a couple of the key components. So once one or two of the key components, the bran, the germ, or the endosperm are missing, it's not considered a whole grain. And that's where the confusing thing is. So that's the difference. Um, I get clients to talk to me about what's the difference between white bread and whole wheat bread. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's a true whole wheat bread, then it's made from a whole grain. So we're getting more fiber, a little bit more nutrients in terms of, if it's a white bread, it's probably just made from refined flour, white flour. So those nutrients, that fiber, those good minerals, some of it has been taken out. Then they enrich it and put it back in, but you don't get it all back in as exactly as it came in its natural so state. more bang for your buck That's by right. eating the whole, right. whole grain. But nutrient. then people get confused. So if we look at rye bread, people think, well, it's brown mm -hmm. and whole wheat's brown, so that must be better for me. But yeah. unless it's made with a whole rye flour, it's just like getting a slice of white bread in, in comparable nutrition, but you're not getting that whole grain unless you read that label. Well, the label. Is the label going to set us right? Is that The label in some regards. So again, there's another confusing part. So the label can set us in terms of we can look at, is it a whole grain flour? Is it a whole wheat flour? 
that can give us one part of the picture. But then the confusing thing I find is um, looking at labels, and I've been, you know, I look at labels all the time. You can look at a sweetened cereal. So it can have a, a stamp that, oh, this is a whole grain source. And the first can be a whole grain flour. But then the next ingredient could be high fructose corn syrup or it could be corn syrup. So am I really getting a healthy alternative? Would I be better serving oatmeal instead of a sweetened cereal just because it has a whole grain flour in it? So that's, I think, where the labels can help. But again, it's one more confusing thing. And we're talking about the nutrition information label, the black and white box, not the cover of the box that might say made with whole grains. Made with whole grains. And it's this, you know, sugary, sweetened cereal. And people go, oh, great, whole grains. But what else are you giving and getting for that cereal? I think that's the confusing thing. So it's not just looking at the nutritional information in terms of how many calories. It's looking at that ingredient list. So the first ingredient is whole grain corn flour. What's the second ingredient? Is it corn syrup? Is it sugar? So how much am I really getting in that product? Does um, When it says 100% whole grains, is that? That's, yes. That's so what that's an easy for. label, 100% whole grain. So if you look at a package of quinoa or one of the different, if it says 100% whole grain, wow, they did the work for you. If you're looking at a label, um, and I know, like I said, we'll get into it in terms of the whole grain council. They have a stamp that says 100% whole grain. So they've done the work for you and said this product is 100% whole grain. What about multigrain? Very deceiving, tricky. So people say, oh, it's a multigrain bread. And I say, great. But what is in it? So is it white flour? Is it wheat flour? Or is it whole wheat flour? Is it a whole grain of rice? What is actually in there? So multigrain, it can be great grains, but are they whole grains? So again, where where's that product in terms okay. of nutrition, fiber, and what's what's it really in? And I think that's a deceiving thing. Um, things like the multigrain um, uh, made with whole grains. Okay, well, how much is in that? And, and how much whole grains am I getting? What's the first ingredient? The first ingredient is white flour, and then I've got some grains farther on down the list. Well, I'm not getting the best product if I'm looking for a whole grain. Well, to make it even more confusing, if you're just looking between white and wheat bread, now they have the whole grain white bread. Yes. Is that better than white bread? Well, that's the, that's the thing that's um, and it's called um, whole white wheat flour which is really, it's a different type of, of grain, and it's actually a whole grain, but it has to say that whole white wheat flour. So that's a new one, and some of the companies have been um, introducing that, and I think that's a great product. But again, one more confusing thing for people at the grocery store in terms of, what am I getting? Oh my goodness, it's too confusing. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air, and we're talking about whole grains with Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate's Joslyn Diabetes Center. So tell me what the Whole Grain Council is. So the Whole Grain Council is an organization that is looking at trying to promote whole grains in, for consumers. What they've tried to do, and again, it's a voluntary thing, so not every product you're going to see is going to have the whole grain stamp on it. So they have three basic stamps. And again, as a dietitian, you know, I look at these kinds of things, and it's confusing. So they have the first stamp, which is called 100% whole grain. It's called the 100% stamp. So 100% of the grain in that product is whole grain. Easy. Boom, pick it. I know I'm getting brown rice. Or I know so I'm this getting is like quinoa. a star or something? It's like a little that. stamp. It looks like a little okay. stamp. It's brown. It's got the little whole grain. It's got the wheat. It'll say 100%. And then what it'll do is it'll list for that product 
the grams of whole grain in that product. Okay. So that, that whole product has to be 100% whole grain. Then they have a 50% stamp. This is for products with have at least 50% of the grain is whole grain. Okay, minimum requirement. This is where it gets tricky. This is again through the Whole Grain Council and, and people can go to the website to try and get even more of a better understanding of it. So the minimum requirement for that is eight grams of whole grain per serving of that product. So it could say eight, it could say 16, it could say 22. But even that number, that product, I am not getting 100% of whole grain. So it's saying I'm getting half of it. Better choice, all right? Okay. Better then, than nothing. Better than nothing. And then they have what's called the basic stamp. So that basic stamp says, oh, the minimum requirement for this is 8 grams, but less than 50% of this product is coming from whole grain. Still better than nothing. So it's, a, it's an identifier for people to kind of know that, oh, this does have some whole grain. And I'm confused, but I want to I improve my, my diet and I want to improve my nutrition. So I'm working towards those servings that the dietary guideline is talking about. So that's an important thing that they can at least, it's an identifier for people to say, oh, okay, this has whole grains. But as they say, not everybody has, not everybody uses the stamp. But okay. it's becoming, I think, more and more known, and I think more and more of manufacturers. Um, probably a marketing trend, and they're seeking it. So again, it's a way of identifying. And when we talked about it, again, you're going to see that on the front of the label. Okay. So you're going to see that little stamp. So take that as, okay, a cue. Let's look at the rest. Let's look at what I'm getting. Now, what about, does that get into fiber content? Because I've heard that some of the, some whole grain foods have added fiber, and I'm not right. sure if that's... That, this doesn't get into it. It talks, you know, um, if you go on the site, it talks about the difference. This is, they're mainly looking at it from a whole grain perspective. They, they talk about fiber and they talk about, you know, what people can be looking for, but their promotion is mainly that this is a whole grain and we're trying to improve the health of our consumers and we're trying to look at a whole grain product. Okay. Does um, things like cellulose, inulin, do those have the same health benefits as naturally occurring fibers? That's actually a really good topic, maybe for another one, okay. because it, it does, um, there's, some there's some different thoughts in terms of that and... Uh, uh, it's fiber, but again, is it from a natural source? They're from natural, but there's a lot of conflicting things that, you know, inulin and what it can do. So that might be another topic that we might want to talk about. Okay. We may be because it can be, again, that's another confusing thing. Am I looking at fiber? Am I looking at whole grains? I think you have to decide, all right, if I need to improve the whole grains, let's look at whole grains. But just because you're getting something that says made with multigrain, you know, when we talked about that, doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a very high fiber source. Okay. Because those grains could be broken down. Because when once the grain is refined, remember, um, when things are taken out, so the bran or the germ or one of those components is taken out, you're taking out possibly some of the fiber, you're taking out some of the vitamins, some of those good key minerals and nutrients in there. So that refined grain, that's where people go, oh, it says multigrain, but it could be a refined grain. So when you talk about a refined grain, are you because I've I've seen that some whole grains can be pulverized into super fine flour. Is yes. that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So is it a did they take brown rice and make that a flour, or did they just take rice and they are calling it? They took some brown rice, or they took some of this, and then they're mixing all these grains together. Are they components? Are they refined grains? Or are they actual true whole grains? Okay. Can you talk about how it is that eating whole grains can help in the weight loss fight if you're trying to lose weight? 
Um, it, I've also seen that it supposedly has some benefits for cancer and diabetes and heart disease. Well, the thing when we're talking in terms of a whole grain, so the bran, the germ, again, the endosperms, the key components, the edible part of it. So take pop, popcorn, for example. Popcorn, whole grain. So when we look at popcorn, wow, we've got a great fiber source, okay? When we look at brown rice, good fiber source, good nutrition, good vitamins or minerals are in that. When we take those things away, we're taking away those. So when we're looking at fiber, um, fiber, tons of different things looking at fiber in terms of making people feel full and satisfied. So from a weight loss standpoint, helping in terms of cholesterol from the heart healthy standpoint in terms of it. So it gives you that feeling of fullness. Okay. okay. You're full. So if you have a good serving of a whole grain, you know, quinoa, those kinds of things, you feel more full, you'll feel more satisfied. So hopefully again, from a calorie standpoint, you might eat less, which would be great. From a heart healthy standpoint, you might be getting more fiber than you normally wouldn't be. It might help in terms of your cholesterol. Um, you might be able to use more herbs and spices with a whole grain so you're not using as much fat content which mm. is going to help in terms of the heart health so all good things in terms of it great great things it's just that we have to get people to know how to cook with them and how to use them and how to introduce them in your diet okay because i think sometimes we're just people aren't aware of how to use them well i was going to ask what do you say to patients who are struggling to include whole grains um are there certain foods that are i don't know easier to oh eat yeah than? especially i mean we're getting away from now but with the cold weather stews soups casseroles in terms of it even in the summer now quinoa is a great one to make like quinoa salads with fruit salads and different so vegetables it, quinoa what does that taste like is that um, like it a rice? Kind of has, it's, it looks, it's a little curly. It's little curly things when you cook it, okay? Um, and a lot of people make like cold salads, as I say. I use it like in stews or casseroles or soups if I'm going to make it So as a substitution time. for a pasta maybe? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh, get a healthier because it's a whole grain in terms of it. And it, it doesn't really, there's red quinoa and there's all different white quinoa. There's all different types of quinoa. Um, I put it, like I said, um, in a lot of winter dishes. I love it in terms of it. Um, some people, as I say, are like, what is it? How does it taste? It really, it's a grain. You know, I think grains can, you can do anything you want with grains. You can make them sweet. You can make them, you know, tart. You can do anything you want with them. Um, they require a minimal amount of cooking, you know, a little boiling, steaming, letting them sit. They're not a fast cooking thing. You know, it's, you're not going to have it in two minutes. It's going to take a little time. But crock pot cooking, great. Easy to do. Easy okay. to do. But it's just experimenting, having fun with it. You know, I I think there's been a real surge of seeing those kinds of products out there. They're everywhere now. You see you see quinoa, you see red quinoa, you see all the different types of things. You see pharaoh and people are like, Oh, what are those? Just trying you know, a little yeah. bit Don't of the be things. scared. Don't Try be scared. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well we will have you back to talk about the uh, added fibers at okay. some point because that's an interesting topic. But this has been Amber Smith speaking with registered dietitian dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin about whole grains on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for asking me. Coming up next, how occupations that attract a lot of women are fraught with hazards that may not be apparent. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
Today we're going to explore women's occupational health hazards with an international expert whose presentations in Syracuse were arranged by Upstate's occupational health and clinical centers. In the HealthLink on Air studio with me is Karen Messing, a, a uh, author and researcher and professor emerita from the University of Quebec in Montreal with expertise in occupational health hazards and ergonomics. Welcome, Dr. Messing. Thank you. Well, you've got a doctorate in biology and a master's in genetics. How did you get into researching occupational hazards, and why have you focused on women? Well, um, how did I get into occupational hazards was because my university, since 1976, has had an agreement, a uh, signed agreement, with the trade unions in Quebec, uh, the three major trade union confederations. And that agreement provides for research and training expertise for the unions. So the way it works is if a union has a need, uh, say, for training in ergonomics, uh, they'll call the university. There's a full-time staff member who's paid to um, bring together the uh, union request and the relevant professors. So they'll call us, and then if we can do it, we'll, we'll do it. And they provide coordination all along the project so that uh, the, the funds for the project actually come from regular research funding or training funding. Uh, but the job of making sure that the professors really respond to the request and really respond to the need and that the unions understand that the professors are going to find out whatever they're going to find out, whether the union likes it or not, that whole job of coordination is, is paid for by the university. And it's been a really winning um, arrangement for the university because we've brought in, just our group alone has brought in uh, several millions of dollars in outside funding um, from from the usual funding sources, but still specific for this program because we get workers' questions much before everybody else. So the way it happened was here I am with my PhD in molecular genetics of fungus, and somebody calls in and says, well, we have a union that's exposed to ionizing radiation, and we need an expert to explain to the people what are the dangers for them. Uh, and so they called me because I was the only person that had genetics anywhere in their keywords. And I said, well, yes, but I didn't ever look at a human genetics before, and I don't know anything about it, but I can explain, you know, genetics 101. So they said, yeah, come along and explain it gen and genetics 101. So I met with the um, president of the union and the, and the people on the union executive, and I said, well... Um, what radiation does is it can uh, hit chromosomes and, and change DNA, which is the genetic material. And I sort of went on with an academic explanation of this. And the, it was very quiet in the room. And all of a sudden, the president said, okay, so this could be what happened to my daughter. And his daughter had a... a condition that could well have been genetic. And then of the five guys that were there, four of them had kids with problems that really? could have been related to the radiation. And the fifth one's wife was pregnant. So wow. it was really a horrible, strange moment that I can't, can still not talk about without emotion. 
And I woke up and realized I wasn't lecturing to an undergraduate classroom. I was lecturing to real people with real problems. So that made me, I was quite young at the time, and it made me think about where did I want my science to go. And so I started thinking more about, about human genetics. And I, uh, at the time also, this is many years ago, you, you weren't as much channeled into, you know, I did this for my PhD and I did this for my postdoc, so I better keep doing it for the rest of my life because I'm never going to be, none of my granting agencies are going to let me change a comma in my, in my project description. And so it wasn't like that then. And, and so I was able to have a certain amount of, of uh, I guess, permission from my department and from my university and from the granting agencies that I was able to get money from, from um, the Medical Research Council in, uh, in Canada to go on and, and study these people with help from a lot of colleagues that knew more about it than I did. So I got my education in, in human genetics, and then the, uh, because of that experience with the radiation, um, I then was called by a hospital union asking me to look at radiology technicians and me nuclear medicine technicians and radiotherapy technicians. And I did a study with them where I realized that the, the risks that they were exposed to were not primarily from the radiation. The radiation doses, in most cases, um, except for exceptional situations, the, the radiation doses they were exposed to were fairly low. But the other kinds of risks that they were undergoing uh, were extremely important, such as that they had uh, just stepped up the rate of admissions and the rate of, um, of discharge in the, in the hospitals due to cost cutting. They were just trying to cycle th people through very, very fast. And because they were, they were doing that, a lot more people were outpatient. And therefore, the outpatients were a lot sicker. And therefore, they had to be moved around a lot in the, uh, by the people in the outpatient services, like radiotherapy and nuclear medicine technicians. And so they were doing a lot of, of manual, I guess you can call it manual materials handling, except the materials were patients, and they were getting backaches, and they were getting in, in terrible physical problems. And because this was all invisible to the people who were planning this work, I became interested in the fact that women's work is the, the radiology, the, the, the guys in the plant where they were exposed to radiation, it was horrible and it was scary for them and it was dangerous, but everybody was aware that it was dangerous. The people working in the hospital at the time, there was no sensitivity to the idea that they might themselves be at risk. And I was fascinated by that. So little by little, I got more and more tools for examining in a more holistic way uh, what was going on with these hospital workers, eventually retraining in ergonomics and um, beginning to look at, at uh, systemic approaches to occupational I health. saw that uh, in your name appears on more than 130 peer-reviewed scientific articles, and when I looked through the titles of them at least, I saw that you've done research on a variety of workers, um, sewing machine operators, hospital cleaners, food service workers, retail teachers, um, dozens and dozens of occupations. Is there a theme or anything similar that you've found across all of the fields you've looked at? Well, mo most of the, almost, I would say about 90% of the jobs you've 
mentioned are, are jobs that are primarily done by women. I mean, our, our workforce, ours in Canada and yours in the United States, are, are highly segregated, and women's uh, jobs have certain common characteristics. So the, the characteristics uh, of uh, these jobs done by women is that, um, to put it one way, if the thing looks really scary, if it, if it involves somebody lifting up weights that are so heavy that their muscles bulge and, and they're saying, oomph, then uh, you're going to ask a guy to do it. When it's visibly hazardous, you ask a guy to do it. And when, you, when it's not, then women are, are able to enter those professions. And that means that, to put it the other way around, that the risks in women's jobs are, are less visible. So, for example, um, people don't think when they buy the dishes for the restaurant that somebody's going to have to be carrying those dishes and that those dishes are going to be heavy. They don't choose the dishes by weight. Um, they don't set up the restaurant so as to make it easy and pleasant to walk from the kitchen to the table. You, you set up the restaurant so that the guests, the, the clients, will be feeling comfortable. Um, so there's a lot of, of physical hazards in the service industries that are just not thought of because the people that, that you're thinking about are the clients and not, and not the workers. And that has all kinds of health consequences. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with author and researcher Karen Messing about women's occupational health hazards. Um, we've heard, too, that uh, sitting is the new smoking. Um, which insinuates that it's unhealthy to sit at a desk all day. But what about standing? Yeah, the, the idea that sitting is dangerous has come from some studies that I have critiqued in, in detail in my publications, and it would be kind of technical to go into why I think this, but what I think is that there's confusion in the scientific literature about the li difference between sitting and standing. If you compare sitting all day to uh, sitting when you feel you need to because you're tired and combining that with healthy physical activity like running or bicycling or swimming, then yes, it's much better to be running, bicycling, and swimming than to be sitting on your butt all day. That I have no quarrel with. But what people often confuse as the alternative to sitting is static immobile standing like uh, the way North American uh, supermarket cashiers are, mm -hmm. and only in North America. Um, they, and that is an extremely unhealthy posture. Uh, the fact that you stand, you have no ability to sit when you get tired or when, you, when your body is telling you, I really need to sit right now, is associated with cardiovascular outcomes like varicose veins and other um, kinds of uh, orthostatic hypotension um, and so forth, as well as considerable uh, evidence of musculoskeletal disorders uh, in the legs, feet, and lower back. So uh, to my mind, this idea that sitting is smoking, um, sitting is not smoking. Smoking is smoking. Okay. All right. And mm -hmm. the solution for some of those standing, there are uh, grocery store clerks that are able to sit, on right? Well, in Saudi Arabia, where women are supposed to be so oppressed, the cashiers sit, yes. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, all right, so that's a solution. You know, all over Europe, the cashiers sit. But you, you, what would be ideal, what is ideal, is actually a sit-stand chair where workers can rapidly change their posture uh, from sitting to inclined to standing as they, as they need to and as their body tells them to. There's a lot of jobs that require a lot of standing, but then there's a mix. I mean, a, a nurse mm-hmm. is on her feet a lot or his feet a lot, but there's also some... Pl- time to sit or where you're bending or you're doing something besides standing in one static place? Well, what you actually are bringing up there is the freedom to control your own posture. Nurses are fairly high up in the hierarchy as far as women's jobs are concerned. And so they usually can sit when they when they feel like it, not when they feel like it, no, because they're run off their feet. But um, they nobody is going to get angry at them if they see them sitting. Whereas a supermarket cashier who gets who's sitting gets a lot of nasty remarks. Same thing with a receptionist. Same thing with a bank teller. Um, so that there's there's two elements. There's there's the element of can your workplace accommodate you physically sitting, and then there's the question of whether you yourself have the uh, control, the leeway to control your own posture. And both of those are elements in, in promoting workplace health. I was going to ask you if the hazards women face are different than those faced by men, but I think we sort of addressed that we're looking at jobs that are largely... Well, there's also the question of within the same job, whether women and men are exposed to the same hazards. So, yes, across jobs, men's hazards and women's hazards are different. But in addition to that, within the same job title, women and men may end up doing um, different things, either because of an informal uh, division of the physical labor part. Like in gardening, we find that men end up planting trees and driving little machines around, and women end up uh, crouching over and and planting small plants and and doing weeding. And that's not something the employer decides is kind of something done in the the work teams. But the other thing that happens is we studied um, food servers, and we found that women race around much, much faster than men and that the difference in the number of steps they take uh, is way exceeds, I think, by seven times the difference in stride length. So that wow. uh, the women are really running around. And then you have to think about what are client expectations of women and men food servers, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so there's the, the you have to think about uh, also the the job divisions within the, the, the task divisions within the jobs themselves. Well, thank you so much for talking about this with me. Um, let me remind listeners, your author and researcher, Karen Messing, in Central New York recently to discuss women's occupational health hazards. I'm Amber Smith, and this has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Spoiler alert, I am about to read the beginning of a wonderful short story we received from a Rhode Island professor and writer named James English. Although this opening sounds somewhat sad and depressing, I assure you, the story actually depicts the good fortune that occurs when human resilience, family love, and medicine come together. 
Here is an excerpt from Left-Sided Neglect. Tyler sat beside his mother at her kitchen table and adjusted the hands on the cardboard clock. Her stroke had taken away her clock skills, and the physical therapist had given her a cardboard clock to practice. Tyler adjusted the cardboard fingers to indicate 7.45. You can do it, he said. Of course I can do it, his mother said. What, you think I don't know how to tell time? Left-sided neglect, the neurologist had called it. His mother had no awareness of her left side, even though her ophthalmic exam had revealed that both eyes were healthy. If her left side were going to return, the doctor said, it would come back in the first month, but only if the damage wasn't too severe and her caregivers helped her to tune into her left side. Can you see the big hand just above the eight? Tyler repositioned the cardboard hands so that they said without any doubt, 745. He still couldn't believe his mother's left side was gone. Where, his mother said. Tyler smiled at her. Her facial cream only covered the right half of her face. He remembered those old Dove ads on TV that showed a woman with half her face lathered with creamy soap and the other half with the lesser brand. It was humorous on television, but seeing his mother with a two-toned face made him scared and sad. He'd never felt that way before. He leaned forward at the table, touched the cardboard clock in front of his mother, and said, It's quarter to eight, Mom. I can play your game, Tyler, she gave him a serene smile. A.M. or P.M.? He called his cousin Bonnie for help. She was his mother's favorite niece, an occupational therapist, and lived five minutes away. She had his mother's powder blue eyes, fulsome red hair, and Fitzpatrick feistiness, and she was always game for self-improvement. The summer after Tyler's father died, Bonnie and his mother went on a girls-only trip through Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, and they still said Bitte and Danke to each other. Now it was two days later, and the three of them sat at his mother's kitchen table. His mother had tipped over the salt shaker by her left side, and a pyramid of salt lay on the blue tablecloth, but she didn't notice it. He leaned over his mother and said, Mom, do you want some lemon sherbet for dessert? Sherbet, that would be nice. His mother still called it sherbet. At least the stroke hadn't changed that. He served three bowls, put them on the table, and carefully slipped a spoon on her left side. She looked at the bowl. What, she said? I eat sherbet with my fingers? The spoon's there. He pointed to her left. If you can't see it, turn your head. His mother waved her right hand at him. What, you think I'm an owl? They ate their sherbet in silence. Outside, on the left side of the house, Tyler noticed rain clouds starting to form. Just before they finished, his mother looked up from her bowl and pointed her spoon at him. Her light blue eyes beamed with emptiness. Tyler, did you hide my checkbook? It's here, Mom. He pointed at the slender pad with the green cover, which sat farther to her left, near the knoll of salt. Where, she said. Maybe he was losing his perspective, but it sounded like you're lying, Tyler. Here, he put her hand on the checkbook, but he didn't move it. His mother pointed the spoon at his nose. You're lying, Tyler. for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. 
Please join us next week when we explore circadian rhythms with a sleep researcher and we hear about the importance of bone health, especially for survivors of breast cancer. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.